This podcast is part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club, a program designed to help all podcasts reach their full potential. For information about joining the Robots Radio Rocket Club, check out robotsradio.net. everyone, welcome back to the MCU Lorecast. I'm Captain Shenko. And I'm Psych88. Today we are talking about X-Men 3 The Last Stand. Um, this is going to be the first X-Men movie not directed by Brian Singer. Correct. This one was principally done by Brett Ratner. Matthew Vaughn had been, like, originally set for it, but he stepped aside for personal and professional reasons. Principal photography and shooting again. Mm -hmm. So how much of this train wreck is a little bit of his fault versus most of it being Ratner's fault is eh. Yeah. Before we kind of get into the meat of everything, um, this movie suffers, I think, for the switch in director. Um, It felt a little bit floating out in space and a little bit um, detached. Didn't quite have the same the same vibe as the rest of the movies, and we're gonna we're gonna get into that. But from let's start from the top, I suppose. This movie kind of begins by introducing us or reintroducing us to the character of Jean Grey at a much younger age, and this film is it's really about her and the evolution of her power. Um, so we see a younger Charles Xavier and a younger uh, Eric Lencher. Going to the home of a... I have to say, the uh, the de-aging they did here. Like, you really can't notice it on Stuart. I mean, he's, he's kind of always looked like that up until, I'd say, in the last mm-hmm. six or seven years. But, so, like, it takes a moment for you to go, Oh, okay, they just kind of smoothed out some wrinkles and whatever. And then you see oh, Eric. Yeah. And you're like, no. <laughs> Uncanny Valley here. Like, it's just not particularly good and that was true even when it came out it just his face doesn't look like it's attached to his body (laughs) it's a little bit creepy for sure but um the cgi for this particular scene certainly did not hold up um not even i feel as well as the cgi in x1 and x2 um Mm -hmm. so we get the creepy uncanny valley eric and the slightly less creepy very smooth patrick stewart um meeting the young Jean Grey. Uh, And like I said, this is really about her power and her story moving forward and subsequently ending. Uh, In case you guys are wondering, this is definitely not a spoiler-free zone. We are talking about a movie that came out in 2006. So that's 18 years ago? Or, sorry, no, I can't Mm -hmm. do math. I'm sorry. (laughs) 14 Mm. years ago? That sounds sounds better. Anyway, um... After we meet Jean Grey, we fast forward into the future a little bit. Just a little bit. So it starts out 20 years prior to um, the early 2000s. These mov- the first couple of films were set pretty much in the same time as they were coming out. Um, so we start out 20 years, so that's going to be the 80s. And then we go jump to the 90s. And uh, we get to see a scene with 
a young boy, and he's trying to hide something from his father. Um, this is the character of Angel. He is cutting off his wings, basically, because uh, the overarching plot of this movie is creating a cure for the X-gene and for mutation. Um, basically, the government had been doing some scientific research into a quote-unquote vaccine for the X-gene, and it evidently was successful. Yeah, I have to say, the scene with uh, young Worthington trying to literally, like, rasp off his his wings, um, that one... That one sucker punches. It was hard to see. It was definitely hard to see. Um, and but they establish um, senior Worthington's uh, bigotry, you know, real quick. His line of "Oh, not you too!" Like just boom, done. He doesn't like mutant, and that's I. I have to say that one really gets like just. To, yes, and and it's kind of definitely a direct parallel to real life where. Maybe a child doesn't meet their parents' expectations or how they end up socially or emotionally or romantically doesn't line up with their parents' view of the world uh, to the point where they will hide and mutilate themselves in order to fit the image that their parents have predisposed them to believe is correct and right. Um, And that is very damaging for a child. Um, Anyway... After that, it kind of jumps back to the present, um, to early 2000s, uh, back at the X-Mansion, and we see Sykes' boy going through it. He's very disappointed, very sad, and despondent over the loss of Gene from X2, and is kind of neglecting his duties as a teacher, and has drawn back into himself. Uh, It's also, I feel, worth noting that the actor who plays Cyclops and Brian Singer, they left X-Men to go do Superman, right? Correct. Singer Singer was more interested in bringing to life Superman Returns, and uh, 20th Century Fox decided that when Marsden uh, you know, kind of jumped ship to that, they decided, okay, in retaliation, they're going to kill off Cyclops, and that's what they did. A whole three scenes with Marsden to establish... Cyclops is emotional, whatever, and then done. Mm-hmm. So his uh, Cyclops is killed off pretty quickly. Um, in a, I feel like in a way to establish how far Gene's psyche has deteriorated. Um, we'll get into the comic history in the second part of the show, uh, and Psych can do his normal analysis of, of um, where all of this comes from. But what we know from the frame of the film is that she has this power inside of her that is awakening, and she somehow survives the ending events of X2 because of that power. And then Scott starts hearing things, and decides to go back to Alkali Lake, and then it ultimately leads to his demise. Um, the X-Men then go out, uh, Storm and your favorite guy, Wolverine, yeah. <laughs> go to Alkali Lake to try to find Cyclops, because Charles could sense that something was very wrong. Uh, they find his glasses spinning around, floating from Jean's telekinesis, and then they find Jean unconscious on the shore, and they bring her back to the X-Men. Um, we also then get to see uh, Alcatraz Island where they're developing the, the cure for the X-Gene. 
and uh, Worthington is kind of forcing his son, the same son from the beginning, who's now much older, to receive the first dose of the cure. Uh, and is generally unwilling to hear his son out because his son's terrified and doesn't really want to do this thing and subsequently escapes and flies over the crowd and spooks a whole bunch of people. Can we talk briefly? Can we talk briefly about the uh, just unethical way uh, Dr. Rao behaves? The patient does not want the procedure and yet she continues to move forward with mm-hmm. it. Um, that first that first rule all doctors do no right do first do no harm and she is blatantly just blowing past mm-hmm. that and uh they kind of had said that you know oh yeah the cure is um not mandatory it's elective you can opt not to get it um but here is the guy at the head of the project forcing his own son to receive it against his will and if he's willing to do that to his own son what's he willing to do to just any other mutant walk in the street. Let's see. Um, oh, yeah, that yep. Dr. Rao. We know her voice from mm-hmm. another form of media that you and I really enjoy. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, astute listeners would recognize uh, Auntie Ron uh, in the role there. And I, I, I had a very large epiphany moment when I went back to rewatch this film because prior uh, viewings, I had not been interested in Mass Effect. And now... I mean, obviously, I think we've mentioned before, Psych and I both um, came onto the Robots Radio Network because of the Mass Effect lore cast. And I just thought it was kind of cool. Uh, it, uh, my ears perked up a little bit, and I go, I think I think that's that lady. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, ethics aside, th- this is a whole, whole big mess and kind of an establishing scene for how far things are going to end up going. Um, and this ends up devolving... There are mass lines for people to receive the cure. And one of the people who wants to receive this cure is Rogue, who has... Yeah, can we, can yeah. we back up? Because yeah. we, we got to talk about that scene that leads her to doing that first. And when she hears about the cure, she comes and talks to uh, Xavier mm-hmm. and Storm. And I, I believe Beast and Wolverine are also there for it. And about how... Good God. They couldn't have picked, like, the worst possible person to be like, oh, no, like, there's nothing wrong with you. Like, and we can get into the cure topic later, but that was so patronizing. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it, it could have been mm. just about any of the others, and it, had, and it wouldn't have been as patronizing, for sure. Um, yeah. But, I mean, you get Storm, who is beautiful and who has very good control over her powers that we've seen and whose powers are not typically perceived as an individual threat towards you know people i mean rogue literally cannot even hold hands with her boyfriend without threatening his life um and so for storm to go to say there's nothing wrong with you there's nothing wrong with your powers you know in a in a very different way is still very damaging for the youth that she is supposed to be teaching and guiding as a as an authority figure and as a teacher as well. Um, but she, um, Rogue, decides to go get the cure, and Logan doesn't encourage her or discourage her either way. He kind of leaves it up to her, which class class A teacher teaching Wolverine let the let the emotional hormonal teenager uh, just leave. And I, I, 
I used to be think that X2 was Wolverine and the X-Men. Like, I, I used to make that joke long before it was a cartoon or uh, a comic book line. But holy crap, is X3 Wolverine. actually Wolverine and the X-Men? Yeah. And <laughs> it's so weird to, to see him display so much uh, emotional range. Because he's the Wolverine. He's the loner. I'm just going to gut you kind of guy. And yet here he is being like, yeah, I'm your friend, not your dad. You got to go do you. Like I said, class A teaching from Mr. Wolverine. Um but I think now we talk about the Brotherhood of Mutants and what's going on with them um, through the film because clearly they've they've been major players in the first two, so here we are next three, and they're still major players. Uh, they are clearly vehemently against the cure because, like Storm had said, you know, there's nothing to cure. There's nothing wrong with being a um, you know, you don't need to become human in order to find acceptance. And the Brotherhood takes it maybe even a step further uh, to where they choose to try to steal the cure and weaponize it against anyone who might oppose uh, who might oppose getting the yeah. cure or receiving the cure. Uh, they don't uh, want this cure to exist, yeah. period, but they are also unafraid to turn it against people against... Oh, yeah. Um... Magneto makes a very impassioned speech. Again, a hallmark of character, charismatic le- cult leaders, right? And um, <laughs> I did love the bit of, you know, when he starts getting, uh, he picks up a couple of, it's a group of people that, like, each one of them's from a different team, like, comic book line, whatever, but they're going to make up the core of his new brotherhood here for this movie. And they're like, well, where's your ink? And he's like, I've already been inked. No, no needle shall ever touch my skin again. And it's like, yep. All right. That, you know, again, let's reestablish that, you know, bit of fact there. Right. Mm-hmm. Like for him, this isn't just um, a, a fight for survival. I mean, cause it is, but it is also literally rewatching his life being played out for a new generation. And that's just not going to happen. People will die before he lets that happen, which they do. Just a few. Yeah. Um, Go on. Sorry. Well, no, no, you had some, I I was, that was more of a thinking. (laughs) No, uh, I was just going to move on to, um, you know, we, we, we get, we get Callisto who seems to embody a couple of powers together, which doesn't, that weren't her power set in originally, but whatever. Um, and then we move on to getting the rest of the act, you know, the big brotherhood m- numbers. And we get, we get our mystique out of jail. We get, um, the multiple man juggernaut. and we pick up the juggernaut. Oh, he <sighs> was in charge of the costuming for that man. Uh, you know, I'm sure we can find out who was on costuming. Um, but ultimately Ratner signed off on it, so it's Ratner's fault. <laughs> I just, I so appreciated that they gave him this, like, leather harness to wear as his top, and they just gave him a little, mm. like, flap to cover his his nipples. <laughs> it was distracting yeah. every time Juggernaut was on scene. Um, bec- we will discuss the character. <sighs> yeah, that, um, I wasn't a fan of uh, this iteration of the Juggernaut. Um, he was, it, yeah, no, uh, we've, we've said it a couple of times, this movie was a little bit of a mess. Yeah. Because of what it tries to 
do, I, I think. I think it also, like we also stated, the change of directors did not help this film. No. I think everything everything Brian Singer tried to build kind of got put on the back burner. The big points that Singer tried to make kind of got cherry-picked and then placed on the top of this movie. And then they said, okay, let's make this a Wolver- let's make this Wolverine's kind of like the leader. And then here, here you go. Here's your movie. And then there's a, there's a scary lady mm. with really strong powers. She's going to get you. Yep. Uh, and that's an, another, I think, problematic, overreaching um, theme of this film. Um, the women are not... They are treated as powerful, which I can get behind. But I also, other than Storm, the female representation in this film... All of them were portrayed as villains. Uh, all, a we lot had of them. We had, we had Kitty, but I mean, she was like inadvertently kind of hitting on Rogue's man. Uh, yeah, there was that like fizzle out of teenage drama that they were trying to inject into it, which really didn't just it. didn't play off very well. The film well. didn't need it. And, um, and it was kind of a, a almost like a throwaway that carried on to subsequent, subsequent films, but. Uh, we'll be covering those at a later yeah. date. Um, <laughs> we have we have like a year or more of content to put out. But anyway, um, so we you know we have Mystique who is powerful and in control of her gifts and uh, you know incredible and important to Magneto's cause. Um, but then she's kind of thrown right she's thrown she's to the wayside like she is complete trash because she gets taken out uh, protecting. Magneto, uh, she uh, receives a dose of the uh, of the cure and becomes human. And then all of a sudden, Magneto's like, "Oh, well, you're not one of us anymore. Goodbye." Uh, and then you know, the yeah, doctor yeah. who is giving people the cure is a woman, and um, yeah. And then you know, the character who is struggling with this identity crisis of what she wants to do as far as receiving or not receiving the cure is also a woman. Um, so the perception of women in this is in this film is just is kind of problematic. And then of course we have Jean Grey who is not in control of her power, is not in control of something in her mind, and is all of a sudden now crazed and killing people and trying to seduce Wolverine in a shoehorned romance that they've been trying to make work for three films. Good God, when are they going to let it go? Yeah, well... Uh, one, of, one of the things I had an outside conversation with, with a few people, uh, one, of my, one of my co-workers actually, we were kind of chatting about this because she had said that she's gone back and started to watch some of the old X-Men films. And she was... And one of the things that we both kind of agreed on was that... Maybe they could have made it work because, I mean, canonically, it is a thing for them. But however, how they had tried to frame it within the first two X-Men films and then in X3 now that we're talking about, what it kind of boils down to is I I don't think Hugh Jackman had any chemistry with uh, the actress playing Jean Grey. Yeah, they just that it was very awkward and forced, and some of that might end up being scripting, but they just don't hit it off. Uh, it's like okay, you hate each other, but you don't do a thing. Be ro- be a romance together. Yeah, it 
it's mainly because it it never had any real leg to stand on. Because um, your first movie is Wolverine like making a move on an established relationship. Like this isn't you know two two people just figuring out they like each other. They're in a relationship, and he kind of mo- tries to move in. And then the second movie. We get so little screen time with Cyclops and absolutely zero building on that relationship. And so there's there's this, well, will they, will, will she leave him because Scott's not available right now kind of crap. But again, that's nothing to build on, especially when they kill her off at the end. And so now we come to the third one and, oh, hey, by the way, she also has a split personality disorder and uh, her powers make her go completely bonkers. But hey, it's fine. You still like her, so play with that. It what, yeah, their like, little makeout scene at the X Mansion too was it was gratuitous to say the least. It really it was, was about forty five <laughs> seconds too long. <laughs> it was almost comical. Like we were we were getting into like some like farcical stuff, especially when she used to the telekinesis, whip his belt which she off. doesn't have control over. To whip the belt off. Yeah. Like, like, okay, come on, guys. She can't control whether or not she lifts cars as she walks by, but, oh, hey, belt flying off? Perfectly fine. Uh, the, the plot yeah. determines um, the powers. Exactly. And the plot and said that, was, that Hugh Jackman's belt needed to go. There, yeah. I mean, we can spend, like, all freaking night on how problematic this movie was. I think it definitely um, damaged the franchise more than it aided it uh to the point where later films would retcon the events of this film right like money monetarily this film did fantastically um but critically it was i'm not gonna say it was panned but it was certainly not well loved and the storylines and the things they did to these characters provided the it started the foundation for like well maybe we just erase that can we just kind of go back and not do that? And yeah, that's what that's where this started. Uh, I'm I'm just um, I'm checking the reviews because I I do need to <laughs> I need to see how it stacked up. I do I do know it, it is perceived typically as one of the weakest performing X Men films. It's not giving me the percentage, but most of these are are bad. So <laughs> we're just gonna go with it was bad. Anyway, to, to bring us to towards the end of the film and then into the rest of the show, uh, I think the biggest turning point for all of the characters is when Jean ends up going back to her childhood home. And then we have Charles Xavier going back and then we meet there also with Magneto. And it's kind of a replay of the scene from the beginning where both Charles and Eric go to see Jean Grey, to recruit her, to bring her to the X-Mansion and to teach her how to use her powers. But now we've got Charles who wants her to contain and control her power and then Magneto who wants to use her power for his goals. And then she subsequently uh, uses her powers to kill Charles. Yep. She dusted him before dusting became a thing with Thanos. She snapped Charles before Thanos snapped the world yep and then she ends up going with the brotherhood yep so yeah she goes with the brotherhood and she kind of 
it wildly swings between she knows what she's doing and she knows where she is and she doesn't know what she's doing or she is. And it's never really clear exactly when and when she does not have that awareness of what's going on. It's very much she's standing there very demure and mysterious and we don't know what's going on in her head and we don't know what's happening. But, you know, she just killed her childhood mentor and she killed the man that she loves and almost tried to, like, seduce Wolverine, which she kind of said she wasn't going to, but she kind of said she was going to, and it got a little muddy, for sure. Yeah. But the the X-Men have a meeting and they they end up deciding, you know, we're not going to send the students home. We're going to keep the school open, continue to teach them. Yeah, let's talk about, (laughs) let's talk about a moment of, like, high tension, right? The future of the school. They're going to wrap that up in 30 seconds of conversation. Done. We're staying. That's it. Like, that alone should have been an arc in and of itself. And it was just... The runtime of this film was ridiculously short, too. I mean, this Indeed. movie clocks in at just under an hour and a half. I, I think the official runtime yep. is like a hundred and what is it, like a hundred and four minutes or something? Ridiculously tiny. I don't. Let's I don't remember. See. The runtime is a hundred and four minutes. So yeah, just just over an hour and a half. But about fifteen minutes of that is the credits. Um, <laughs> and there is an end credit scene. But we'll get there. Where do we go yep. from deciding to keep the school open? We we kind of head into the mm-hmm. ending, actually. Um, Magneto makes his big play. We have the the big scene of moving the Golden Golden. It's Gate not Bridge an X Men film until Magneto from... moves something absolutely gigantic. Right, like, and he uses it to basically from the mainland stretch all the way to Alcatraz Alcatraz Island, which. Still shouldn't have worked structurally, but hey, whatever. It's it's a the plot determines the power. Um, <laughs> yep. I mean, visually, it is a very that's a very big thing. It's very noticeable. It works great for the trailers, all that good shit. But yeah, it's uh slightly less gratuitous yeah. than the Wolverine and Jean makeout scene. Yeah. Um, and then from that, we get our you know final big fight. Um, we see, you know, they, they showcase fairly well Magneto's, um, uh, merciless side, his, his strategy, let the pawns go yeah, first. He's just throwing yeah. his guys straight into the fire. They are cannon fodder. Yeah. Yeah. And initially he just thought they were just going to be killed by bullets, but it turns out, you know, it's weaponized plastic, uh, encased cure. And so <clears throat> his pawns aren't just being killed, uh, they're also being turned back into uh, Homo sapiens. And then, you know, the X-Men show up with the X-Jet and there's the big fight. And you've got you've got Wolverine leading with Storm playing kind of second fiddle, which doesn't make any sense because Xavier was like, yeah, I want you to take over. So really, you know, again, that's back to your point of uh, how women weren't portrayed very well, right? Xavier wants her to lead, but really this movie is about Wolverine. And Storm's playing second fiddle. Um, and then we've got, you know, we've got Colossus playing a, ma- a more than more than what he was in X2 role. I'm not going to say major role, uh, but he's on the team. Uh, we've got Kitty and we've got Iceman. And Beast. Uh, and the Beast, right, uh, played. I mean, vocally speaking, I love the fact that it was Kelsey Grammer. 
I I don't know about the rest of it. Like, I it sort of worked, but there, anyway, whatever. You could definitely um, tell he was on a wire rig. The, the framing for most of his scenes was very clunky. Uh, he did not look like he was, he, he did not look like he was a part of the scene. He was present in the scene, but he was not folded into it. He was layered yeah. on top and they said, there you go, there's Beast. He's blue, he's flying around the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, and he roars. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, speaking of wire rigging, Shanko. Give us a fight breakdown of this of this last one. Like, uh, what's wrong with it? What worked? Uh, what didn't? So, <laughs> Magneto, I feel, actually had a reasonable plan. Uh, as ruthless as it was, he's 100% right. You send in your shock troops before you bring in the main forces. You send in the people you can afford to lose before you send in your major players. Uh, so... He held back his most powerful group, his kind of core group of the Brotherhood, for the last couple of pushes. Uh, I actually... It should be noted... What's that? Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I was going to say it should be noted that multiple men had already been used as a decoy. Mm -hmm. So he, like, you would think you'd want to use the guy who literally creates copies of himself as shock troops, but he had been used to create a decoy for the people that... For the base camp that Mystique knew about somehow before she was captured, I don't know. Doesn't yeah, really this, matter. Like, like we said, this movie was kind of a mess, and there were a whole lot of strings that didn't end up getting tied off or cut off, and a whole lot of oh. loose ends just hanging out in space. I. But yeah, sorry. Back to your yeah, fight breakdown. I did like that they that Kitty went after Juggernaut because that tactically does make sense. She can cover the ground in enough time um, to be able to reach her target before the guy who has to lumber through the walls. Um, I enjoyed seeing her thinking on her feet when she realized that the boy she was rescuing turned off her ability. Um, So she basically just waited for the juggernaut to appear and then let him him run himself straight into a wall and knock himself out. Um, That was intelligent thinking and that is what you would want ideally in a situation where you know you're not going to win a head-on-head conference. Um, because, I mean, the Juggernaut, in all of his crop-top, helmet-wearing glory, was very large. And I don't think the 100-pound teenage girl would have been able to take him down in a, in a head-on-head fight. Especially no. if it was just powers on powers, he would eventually overpower her. Her best course of action was to run away. That's your fight-or-flight instinct. I think Uh, we also get kind of the team up scene um, where, you know, we we reenact the moment from earlier in the film. And this film does this a lot. It kind of mirrors scenes that happened earlier as a plot device, which you do it once fine, but you do it six more times and it loses its tact. Um, So in the danger room earlier in the film, we saw Colossus throw Wolverine at the Sentinel and Wolverine took it out. Um, We see this again when Wolverine is going to fight Magneto. And, uh, you know, he's, I think it's very funny that multiple times through the films they said, oh yeah, let's send the guy with the metal skeleton after the villain who can control metal. That makes sense. Let's not, you know, send the actual yeah. weather-controlling goddess 
after him. You know, let's send the guy with the metal bones. No. Why barbecue a guy when you can try to stab him with metal uh, claws? Uh, yeah, let's send the metal guy to throw the other metal guy at the guy that can control metal. <laughs> Uh, so yep. tactically, that made absolutely no sense at all. Um, kind of worked out, though. They used it as a massive distraction, and then Beast ended up jabbing four doses of the cure into Magneto to take him out. Um, We're not just going to cure your <laughs> ass. <laughs> it's like, here you go. You're going to misuse your powers? You don't have them anymore. Um, so yeah, Magneto gets humanized, uh, and then... You know, Kitty escapes with the boy, who then goes on to become a student at Xavier's. And Storm's running the school, uh, <laughs> all that. Uh, and then, you know, after Magneto gets taken out and, you know, things are kind of starting to die down and the X-Men are starting to be like, okay, you know. But Jean is still here. Uh, and Jean is, I mean, obviously, Magneto wanted her in the Brotherhood because she was powerful and because she had a, a potential and an absolute, I mean, they explain it a couple of times that she is the only class five mutant to currently exist. I'm sure you'll. I love how everyone just knew what yeah, that Yeah, there was no like. explanation for it. Um, Callisto mentions earlier in the film, like, oh yeah, no one in this room is over a class three except for you and, and points at Magneto and, uh, you know, it's like, okay, are you going to, you're going to elaborate on your mm. classifications or are you just, are we just going to throw out some arbitrary numbers what's a what's a base human yeah. zero <laughs> <laughs> basically uh, so, so we've I mean, got humans yeah. at a zero and, and then gene gray at a, at a five and then everyone else floating around somewhere in the middle um, yeah so yeah that that's another like one of those loose ends that's kind of out there where you know if you're a comic fan you definitely understand a little bit of the power scaling but for an outside person who does not have the background knowledge of the comics, your average, say, 12-year-old going to see X-Men in theaters who has maybe never picked up a comic book in their life, or their parents mm -hmm. who definitely didn't pick up a comic book, they're going to go, what are they talking about? No explanation. It's just an arbitrary figure that's put out there as a, as a scary kind of indication. It's over 9,000. <laughs> it is effectively, it's over 9,000. But X-Men this time. Yes. <laughs> yep, that's it. Um, and even the comics don't no, use... No, they uh, use uh, class Alpha. Five. It's uh, Omega and Alpha and... Yeah, but anyway. Um, so now, yeah, we come to the culmination of the Wolverine, Jean Grey romance... And she's completely freaking lost it. She's literally dusting everything in sight with her telekinesis. And Wolverine, after, you know, after we get to show off again how great he looks shirtless and uh, do some slapstick CGI uh, to show off the metal bones, uh, you know, I love you. Stab. Done. Like, okay. And, That's it. And there's Game a massive over. leap between I'm attracted to you and I, I want to make out with you even though you're with another guy and I love you. Uh, but And then he has to kill her, which puts an end to all the insanity for sure. Uh, you know, they, they get the kid so they can't continue to produce the cure. The doctor got pinned. <laughs> yeah, she got quilled. <laughs> she got needled. Uh... Mm -hmm. 
so she's gone. So they, they have no doctor to make the cure. They have uh, no child who produces the cure. And it's still... I, yeah. I have a hard time putting together thoughts about this film because this film didn't put together thoughts before they started producing it. Damn. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, that's fair. So, um, as we talk briefly about the end credit scene and then go to our mid-break. Um, mm-hmm. So, at the end of the film, Rogue comes back to the school and she has decided to get the cure we get a kind of touching scene where she gets to hold hands with her boyfriend for the first time with no gloves and you know it's all very sweet and then we get to see magneto as just looking like an old man sitting in a park with his chest set and he kind of concentrates and points his finger and then the chest piece moves a little bit and then it cuts and then you get your more credits uh so i guess the the cure didn't work or it has a limited uh, ability like a limited time Mm -hmm. factor on it it's not as permanent as they may have thought um like because they say it's to suppress the x gene well maybe eventually that suppression wears out it's not an elimination of the x gene so at any point any of the people that were quote quote cured could spontaneously have their powers reactivate on them. It's implied that, you know, it's, it's set up as a cliffhanger of like, ooh, maybe? Maybe we come back? And especially with the final, final in credit, after all the credit stuff, uh, we have our... Moira. McTaggart, Dr. McTaggart. She, they had briefly introduced this comatose, like zero high-functioning uh, brain activity person as a patient... And we get Xavier's voice either as a thought projection or something to to McTaggart saying, hello. And he had, in his last moments before he got dusted, sent his consciousness off to this body to be reawakened. So the possible idea of Xavier returning, Magneto having his powers back, it's all set up there just waiting for Fox to come back to this franchise. Mm-hmm. The, it, it lacked um, finesse when it came to leading us mm. into subsequent films. Uh, it said, okay, here's what we're leaving out here. Here are the characters that could potentially return. You have to know that Magneto did not fully lose his powers. And here are all the players that are still at play. Uh, but it didn't do it in a subtle yep. way or in a way where it leaves us guessing. We know. We know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so with that, let's go to our mid-break. All right. Um, Welcome to our mid-break. As these are pre-recorded and we have not yet put up our episodes that we have done, um, this is normally where we would read off, you know, any five-star reviews or, um, or any other stuff that we normally would do here in this in the thank you portion of the podcast here. Um, so really it's just a, a big thank you to, to you, our listeners and theoretical fans <laughs> that, you know, we appreciate you taking the time to listen to these episodes and we do look forward to being able to talk to you in the near future. Um, everything is almost ready to go on our end. I had, I had like a, thing happened and it didn't quite happen like we wanted to but we are moving forward and everything's great 
Everything is just fine. And for anyone listening down the line in the future at some indeterminate point in the future, if you're listening to this and you like what you're hearing, maybe drop us a five-star rating on Spotify or a good review on, uh, on iTunes, any places where you could possibly potentially leave reviews. We're also both active on the Robots Radio Discord and can be found on all the social medias. Okay, psych. Let's get yep. into the comic history, which is your wheelhouse. Oh man. Let's enter your wheelhouse. Oh my. How God. badly did they butcher the, amount... the media that you love? It make it doing the notes for this one hurt. I can well imagine. <sighs> but let's get <laughs> let's get into uh, some some the introductions. You know the the other new characters that we talked about. So. Uh, like we said, we finally introduce uh, Shadowcat to the X-Men roster. Um, so this this would have been the third actor to play Kitty at the time. And the, the actor is Elliot Page. He had done a great job with what was given at the time. Um, and so much of these stories, surprisingly enough, involve Kitty to some degree and zero respect is given to Shadowcat. Like, and I will get into it more when we discuss the cure and all that stuff. But, so, for introductions, uh, Shadowcat was introduced in October 1979 in X-Men number 129 by our two favorite guys, Claremont and Brian. Uh, this was also the first appearance of the Hellfire Club. That will be important later. Um, we also get... Finally, the other two members of the original five, Beast and Angel, introduced in X-Men number one in September 1963. So this was the only movie to star all five of the original X-Men in the movie, and it was a real freaking shame that we never got a scene with all of them together or anything, because by the time, <laughs> by the time you get to see Angel in his full glory... Cyclops is dead. <laughs> Which I, I'm sure is uh, not so good for you. No. Now, as a as a big fan of the character, uh, seeing his death, uh, even the first time, was awful. And then the recent rewatch was actually even worse. Because you remembered um, it happened, but you still weren't ready for it. <laughs> no. Um, so, yeah. Uh, also, at the time of, you know, the original five, Beast looked relatively human. Uh, he just looked rather large. He had big hands and big feet. His first transformation wasn't until Amazing Adventures, uh, Amazing Adventures number eleven, in March 1972. And his catchphrase, "Oh my stars and garters," which uh, Kelsey Grammer did do once in the movie, uh, that wasn't until Avengers number 137 in July of 1975. So. The character has evolved a lot, and he has continued to evolve. Uh, at the time of the movie's release, Beast had actually gone through a third mutation that had turned him rather uh, cat-like. And, like I say a couple years ago, a few years ago he went through a fourth mutation. So, they've continued to evolve him. He's not the only one. Angel. Um, it was surprising that they decided to go with Angel as the like poster child to get cured. Because comic book Angel 
loves his powers. He loves to fly. And in fact, the loss of his wings is a major turning point for him in uh, in X-Factor, where he becomes Archangel due to machinations by Mr. Sinister and Apocalypse. So it was a real disservice to Angel in the movie to be like, oh no, I hate myself so much, and so I'm going to get cured, except maybe I don't really want it. Like, it just really was not handled very well. Like, at all. Yeah, so the mishandling of the source material is a major problem with this film. Indeed. We're going to skip that one. Um, We're going to go right to Dr. Rao. Uh, She was introduced in Astonishing X-Men number one, May 2004, by Josh Whedon and John Cassidy. Um, It is... That is one of my absolute favorite runs. Even, like, Whedon's stuff all aside, that series of books is my favorite, hands down. And it majorly stars Cyclops and Shadowcat and Colossus. Uh, But Rao, uh, she definitely does create the cure. Uh, But she was helping a young mutant whose powers were to manifest her nightmares into the real world and it killed her parents and a police officer so that hits harder than let's cure the guy with angelic wings right well you know let's not let's not like cure we the, have a, the guy you know someone with a, a crazy physical mutation that he can't control that makes it hard for him to just exist in society let's let's kill this angelic or let's kill this angelic image get rid of it exactly um and then we've got the boy who uh you know, they developed the cure from his name. His code name was Leech. In the comics, he is a little uh, green-skinned. Um, he's not like reptilian, but he, he's definitely f- different. He doesn't have like a nose. He doesn't have other facial features. So, <clears throat> having it like having the big difference here is that he's basically a bald white kid. Was again another not just significant like. Uh, deviation from this material, but also a disservice. This would have been a great opportunity to show I don't a little know, bit more diversity. You know, yes, a little bit more diversity. Yes. Um, I, sorry, Leech introduced uh, Uncanny X Men number one seventy nine in December nineteen eighty three with Claremont and Paul Smith. We also um, we also have Callisto. She was the a mutant tracker on uh, Magneto's team. That it was not her power set at all. She's um, she's got enhanced senses and enhanced reflexes, uh, but she was never uh, the mutant tracker for the Morlocks, which is primarily the team that she plays on. Uh, I say team; it's a loose, loosely used word there. Um, the tracker was Caliban. Um, Anyway, she's introduced Uncanny X-Men number 169 in May 1983 by also Claremont and Smith. They were really developing their the Morlocks um, in that time mm-hmm. frame. So they, they basically mashed all of those characters into the one. Yeah, a little bit. Like, you don't even recognize um, Callisto. Uh, Callisto's uh, traditional look has an eye patch uh, and everything. I was completely missing for an edgy goth look, basically, of heavily tattooed and, and pierced, um, rather than, 
rather than what she was. Uh, so, also, we've got Jamie Madrix, the multiple man. He's introduced in giant-sized Fantastic Four number four in November 1974. Say that f- five times fast, Just say right? it four times. Uh, that's by... <laughs> uh, that's uh, Lynn Wynn, Claremont, and uh, I'm going to butcher this, John Bosima. Very, very important thing here. Madrix was not a villain. I don't know why they pulled him onto the Brotherhood team, but that's the direction that they went with the movie. Uh, his first introduction, yes, he does fight the Fantastic Four, but that's a whole convoluted thing with his containment suit and going crazy and being isolated. It's it's not because he was a bad person. And now, <laughs> the big one. I say the big one, there's two of them here, but the the big guy here is the Juggernaut. The Juggernaut. Introduced in X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Juggernaut, bitch. Oh, Vinny, Vinny. I, I love Vinny Jones. He's fantastic. I hated him in this role. It was not the role for him. Anyway, X-Men number 12, May 1965, with uh, Lee Kirby and Alex Toth. Huge, huge deviation from character. In the movie, he's a mutant with momentum-based powers. None of that's true. Um... His powers are mystical in nature, provided by the Gem of Sidorak. Um, he is also the stepbrother to Charles Xavier. They have an abusive past together that is really built up. It's highly antagonistic. And the movie just drops all of that for big henchmen. That's what the Juggernaut boiled down to in this movie. And it... Like, I, I, we keep saying disservice, or at least I keep saying disservice. I cannot, the word is not enough to describe how much of a disservice it is. Uh, maybe a bastardization? Yeah. Yeah, I like that so one. That's the yes. word. Um, it definitely strayed from the source material um, crop top being <laughs> one of the glaring ones that comes to mind because boy was that distracting. Um, we saw an an uncomfortable amount of his midriff the entire time he's on screen. And like they they're like, okay, so what's with the helmet? And it's like he's it's there to protect his face. And I'm like, okay, well what about the rest of <laughs> it's like, it? Like what are you doing about your old guts that are just like out for the world to see? Like there's a guy with a metal skeleton and giant claws. You don't think he's just gonna like rake those straight across your washboard abs? I'm like you're drawing oh, lines for him, buddy. Um all right, and so, um, and now for our last one of characters, it's Phoenix slash Dark mm-hmm. Phoenix. The Phoenix was introduced in May 1976 with X-Men number 100 by Claremont and Dave Cochran. The Phoenix is a cosmic being that selected Jean Grey to become its next host due to some cosmic convoluted compatibility. Plot. Whatever, all right? <laughs> plot of the comic book i feel like it's better than oh yeah let's just develop a split personality suddenly here like like what um there is a whole convoluted series of events surrounding jean gray and the phoenix but eventually we are led to 
the Dark Phoenix Saga, which is considered one of the le- like one of the best storylines in X Men history. And I remember how I said the Hellfire Club was important when I introduced uh, Shadowcat. They come back here, and they are the ones who uh, twist Jean's mind into becoming the Dark Phoenix. Um, fans of the uh, animated series will recognize. Uh, the inner circle that was the Hellfire Club. In fact, in the comic books, they are the inner circle of the Hellfire Club. And the reason the Hellfire parts cut off is because it's a kids' show, so they were just becoming the inner circle. Uh, same major players of you know Emma Frost and Sebastian Shaw and Mastermind and all that good stuff. Um, and in fact, the TSA did probably one of the best like adaptations to date and we will definitely we will get into it more when we when we have to review dark phoenix movie um but yeah um if you if you get the opportunity i highly recommend you go read it all that good stuff uh notable mentions uh the danger room made an appearance uh that was also introduced in x-men number one and also sentinels the big robot that Big robot head that was you know tossed there at the ground to, at the start yes, this of the movie. Was the first time we saw them in that, film. Yes, this was the very first time. It was hint, you know, this was kind of hinted at, and we wouldn't see Sentinels again until uh, Days of mm-hmm. Future Past uh, in the movies. Uh, so they were introduced in X Men number fourteen in September nineteen sixty four by Lee and Kirby. Oh, um, I'm not gonna say. Like, the Sentinel was literally there to be an Easter egg, so that part was fine. Uh, and in fact, I will say that that whole opening sequence of introducing the X-Men was probably well done. It establishes quickly what every character does. It just, it was very formula, like, formula, bleh, formulaic in its, like, way of doing it. Alright, here's the big guy. He turns into steel. That's Colossus. And, oh, he's with Rogue. She'll absorb it. Also turn into steel. So, yeah, like, it was just, like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Okay. Everyone's everyone's established. It was We're very all much like the director sitting there with a clipboard saying, okay, this is an X-Men. What do we absolutely mm-hmm. need to show in order to establish this is... And they said, okay, let's just put them in the danger room and give them all a scene where they show their powers. Not yep. bearing in mind previous two movies where we already established their power. And, oh my god, uh, again, more disservice to the source material. We get a whole three seconds of Iceman's proper ice form. And it's three like seconds. a throwaway. Like, he uses it to show up Pyro, not even, you know. Uh-huh. It's just, it's a major part of his character, and we spend three movies to get that it mm, as he's one of my top five favorite characters in the x-men roster again just so much disappointment (sighs) okay that's it for introductions what else would you like to know (laughs) so what was going on in the world that may have influenced these storylines because I, I know one of the major things that we try to highlight is you know the real life um, correlations to media. Right. Um, so this is 2005. So the big stuff when it, when this movie was being filmed. This is probably 2004 and 2005. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we were 
we're really gearing up our this one doesn't have so much i mean it's got it's got the commentary on on coming out and uh you know and loving yourself uh which would still is still here we are 2022 here still a very big thing um you've got um apparently there was in the movie timeline there was a a political uh a presidential election because there's a new president Mm -hmm. and that's established so uh you know between two and three which also means that there was a significant amount of time where cyclops was doing nothing but grieving like that has to have been more than a year's worth of just sitting around moping now look i everyone processes their grief grief differently yes yes but I think you would um, expect from someone that Charles Xavier is looking at into a leadership role and to potentially take over the school. Maybe not a desirable trait. Yeah, it. what, what I'm meaning here is, um, again, it was a significant mishandling mm-hmm. of the character. We are supposed to believe that her death is fresh and still, you know, still, we're still reeling from it. But the reality was it could have been over a year ago. And you've got one of the top, top telepaths and as a mentor and a friend, and you haven't turned to them for help to, to help you through your grief. You've just been sitting around being angry and depressed. Like that is not healthy. That's not okay. He should have Mm -hmm. done something, but we needed to kill him off because Marsden was going on to Superman Returns. So even more character assassination uh, done here. You can here. tell Marsden did. It, it's glaringly obvious on screen. Yes. Uh, he looks yeah. absolutely... I it mean, really he's meant was. to be depressed and grieving, but the distaste that he displays in his, like, full five minutes screen time, it doesn't read It doesn't if read that. as sad, mopey, depressed. It, it reads as, I really don't want to freaking be here. Yeah. And, you know, this could have been the movie where we see we would have finally seen cyclops be the leader because we really didn't get that first first movie has to establish the team and like yes we got like a little tiny bit of him giving orders but that's not being a leader like that's that's not how you just lead and then the second one he gets he brainwashed didn't get so. to do a whole lot he spends half of it brainwashed um and then the other you know whatever parts that he's not being brainwashed in uh, oh god, Jean's out there. We can't let her die. You know, like we never really got to see Cyclops take the lead, make the stand, and be the leader of the X Men. Yeah, and that's a disservice to the character uh, for sure, because comic wise, that is an integral part of his characterization. Indeed, yes, that's like it is his one of his core characteristic traits that he's a vastly great superior uh tech uh tactician um he like he thinks in three dimensions in a way that like few of the other big leaders like it's on par with captain america he's supposed to be on par with captain america tactically i never got that in any of the x-men movies with this cyclops definitely not in the way that we got captain america as a leader in the Avengers or any of his films, really. Exactly. It was definitely a mishandling of the character and um, a massive, massive disservice. And 
I've never hidden my my feelings about this film and how it handles its characters, not just from the female gaze, but also in general how they handled a whole lot of the characters. Um, yeah. Like. Yeah. Like. Yeah. I, I still have feelings about this film, and I. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's just it. It kills me because this film. It, it had the potential to be something great. And then the reins get passed to another director who maybe doesn't have the same vision. And, you know, I don't know if, if Singer would have carried on into a third film um, and had the same performance that, you know, X-Men and X2 had. But X3 was certainly mishandled. And like you said, it did very well in box office. But uh, from a review standpoint did not perform yeah um between no, the yeah. uh, the creepy cgi uh, moments the gratuitous <laughs> displays of the male form the mishandling of several beloved characters and then just the general air that several of the people involved in the project did not want to be there absolutely killed the spirit of this film yeah 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 that's yeah that's that's it um other you know current events because okay so the like major catalyst is the cure that was introduced in the astonishing x-men comic book with uh that introduced rao and and and, uh, like all of them that whole origin is it well it's just a better story overall um but in that in and of itself doesn't it doesn't have, I can't say it doesn't have, but I, I'm not exactly certain what uh, real events would have been playing into it at the time. It was a fresh, to me, it was a fresh story. It was, because we were still kind of coming off uh, the cure of the legacy virus and other uh, other events that had happened in, uh, specifically, the X-Men's storybooks. Um, so, really, this one was just taking a, I'm going to say, popular comic book storyline and applying it quickly to a movie that came out only a couple of years after this comic book came out Mm -hmm. and ultimately the cure uh didn't really make that much of a splash uh within 10 issues of that happening the 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 events of m day happened and we will discuss that when we talk about wandavision uh because that's the significant source material for that but you didn't need the cure after M Day, basically. So it became a plot point that just mm-hmm. went nowhere. I did like the ethical questions that the, the cure brought up. Movie greatly mishandled. The comic book did a much better job of handling. You know, because you're not because you're not just talking about changing, I don't know, your hair color or you know, uh, let's let's say we've made up a cure for. Uh, you know, brown eyes, quote, quote, right? Like, we can change your eyes so that you're, no one has to be brown-eyed anymore. Yeah, you're not just changing someone's, That's, you know, you're changing them down to their DNA. You are exactly. essentially changing and, what makes them them. Yeah, but you are, but also, you have to, like, this isn't just some superficial cure. There are mutations that are dangerous to the, to the mutant, dangerous to the people around them, uh, dangerous to property around them like that it could save lives because you know you're talking about people who can harness uh atomic energy or people who had uh you know grown you know monstrous in size uh and 
you know, had huge body dimorphism, right? Who, you know, when you're given the opportunity to be like, to return back to a, you know, a state before all that happened, and you didn't like yourself, you, if you, you know, you were having issues. I mean, that's, that's part of, where am I? I don't even know where I'm going. I'm so sorry. The point is, it's, it's more than just a superficial idea, but the movie did not, again, it didn't handle it all that well. You know, you see the, the lines of people for the cure, most of them just looked human. Most of that was because you just pay a bunch of extras and you have them stand in the line. You're not going to do a bunch of makeup and other effects for, for it. Um, but when your poster child is, let's cure the angel, eh. The, the cure, it's not, um, it's not as simple as something like uh, getting a flu shot. You're not just inoculating yourself for a disease or a sickness that you could potentially get. The cure is, I think, how it works with movie magic is that it probably deactivates the X gene. Um, but like we had stated, that is a change mm-hmm. to the person. That is something that changes who they are, and it changes their physical identity and their um, traits and abilities, not just giving them an immunity to something. Because you can't necessarily cure someone of a physical trait yeah so yeah i think (sighs) our um, feelings about this particular film are pretty clear um i don't think either of us particularly enjoyed this film i uh, certainly uh, i i put it off as long as i could because i (laughs) knew that i was just signing myself up for trauma because i didn't love this film the first time i saw it and I still don't love it. Um, yeah. Just because and, I... And it only gets worse yeah, from there. Uh, what's the... We gotta go through some dark times before we can come back out. Now, next week, we will do our first character deep dive to round out our mutant episodes here with everyone's favorite Southern Belle, Rogue. And we hope to have a special guest on with us. Now, go ahead and take us out, Shenko. Right. Yeah. This has been the MCU Lorecast. I have been your Captain Shenko. Really appreciate everyone that may be listening to this either, you know, now or in the future. We can be found on the Robots Radio Discord. We are also on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as MCU Lorecast. And you can also send us an email at mculorecast at gmail.com. We will answer any questions or maybe read out some statements if anyone has any thoughts about anything we may talk about down the line send them our way we would love to know what you guys want us to talk about what i hear us say and things you want us to cover or characters you want us to talk about uh, anything from you psych other than uh yeah i've got the one thing um i don't know I, I i've probably plugged it before but i'm also part of the mass effect blue shift tabletop rpg podcast we are we're still we're still working currently on another hiatus uh, our gm left for a month so can't get together but what we have recorded we will have out hopefully soon i know i said it probably the last time we were here hopefully that's still true i uh, say i've listened i've listened to what is up on spotify and i really enjoyed it so anyone that's into mass effect definitely go check it out and, you know, if you like Psych, you. hear from the MCU Lorecast, go check out his other stuff. All That's right. it. Bye, everyone. Bye.
As we all know, when it comes to making a movie, there are a lot of people working behind the scenes to make that movie magic happen. And it is no different when making a podcast. Welcome to the credit section of the MCU Lorecast. Captain Shanko and I would like to personally thank the following for their incredibly hard work and faith in us to get this podcast rolling. Tom, the head of the Robots Radio Network, for hosting and mentoring. N7 Legend of the Mass Effect Lorecast for inspiration. Genesis and Vervada of the Two Girls One Ship podcast for introducing us. Let's Not, a fellow tabletop gamer and friend for the amazing artwork. Pipe Men, a veteran and friend for the outstanding music. Our significant others for believing in and supporting us through this. And you, our fans without whom this would be a vanity project. Let us know how we're doing by leaving us a review on Apple or a rating on Spotify. And, to quote Stan the Man, enough said. When a wasteland detective and a vault girl cross paths, no criminal is safe. You're both under arrest. Don't move a muscle if you know what's good for you. Based in Bethesda's Fallout series, follow Walter and Bunny as they traverse the Texas Commonwealth and New Vegas, busting big crime rings. We'll need all we can to expand into Vegas territory. And surviving anything the wasteland can throw at them. It's him! It's the Mothman! Featuring a series of nail-biting narratives and guest stars from across the Fallout community. It's anybody's guess what thrilling case is up next. War never changes, does it, Bonnie? No, it certainly does not. True Vault Escapades, a Fallout audio drama. Available anywhere you get podcasts. Podcasts.